0: first reading is from 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. It's on page 1018. If you're using that blue Bible, some of you may remember uh, things that were said as we were going through a series in 1 and 2 Peter last year. You may remember some of the details here. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Peter writes this. His divine power, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his own uh, his, uh, precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgot that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you'll notice that before we get to all the supplement your faith with these virtues comes all of these gracious things that God has given us. His divine power granting us all things that pertain to life and Godliness. Knowing him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Even giving us precious and very great promises that liberate us and make us partakers of even the divine nature. Grace comes first. then all the rest of the good things. Now let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles 7, that's page 364 in your blue Bibles, and I would encourage you to keep it open. I'm going to read verses 11 through 22, and I'm going to summarize very briefly chapter 8 and chapter 9, so you can see kind of how it all flows. The Lord's house has been built. Solomon has been involved in a prayer, a service of dedication. And it broke out in a seven-day festival and feasting and all of that And now comes verse 11. Verse 11 will be a summary statement of chapter 7, 8, and 9. And then it'll get down to specific where the Lord actually talks to Solomon about his prayer in chapter 6. Thus Solomon finished the house of of Yahweh and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of Yahweh and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then Yahweh appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, your prayer from chapter 6. I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. That's a direct response to Solomon's prayers in chapter 6, verse 16 here. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be, here, be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will, This now begins two if-then scenarios. A good news if-then and a bad news if-then. Here's the good news if-then. As for you, if you you will walk before me as David, your father, walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your throne, your royal throne, as I covenanted with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Now comes the bad news if-then. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why? Why has Yahweh done thus to this land and to this house? Now these next words, think of how the original recipients would have heard these words because they were in exile, coming out of exile. And the house had been decimated by that point. Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them. And serve them, therefore, he has brought them, brought all this disaster on them. Again, reminding them there's no blame shifting allowed, no excuse making. It's, it, we did this is what the, the point of that passage is to evoke. And so you have a good news if then and a bad news if then and you stop for a moment and you realize that this good news, bad news if then becomes the structure of all the rest of 2nd Chronicles starting when you finally get to chapter 10 if they follow the lord these are the benefits if they turn their back on the lord these are the results and that's the rest of 2nd Chronicles but also you stop and you go well which one of these if thens did Solomon follow Well, generally speaking, there was a couple of dark spots. Go read 1 Kings chapter 11. But generally speaking, Solomon followed the good news, if then. And that's the rest of chapter 8 and 9. That as he continued to persist in following the Lord, his kingdom grew, his wealth grew, his fame grew. In fact, he was so effective that even unbelievers became believers, like the Queen of Sheba, When you finally get to that chapter, chapter 9, and the queen of Sheba, she starts talking about Solomon's lord. She's confessing her faith like Hiram of king of Tyre did back in 2 Chronicles 2. Solomon, generally speaking, pursued the good news if then. And so the kingdom grew and he died at a good old age and rested with his fathers. And his son Rehoboam will be set up as king in chapter 10. My friends, what I've read for you from 2 Peter... ...and what I've summarized and read for you... ...from 2 Chronicles 7-9... through ...it is the encouraging... ...the emboldening... the, ...the embracing word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Here we are, Lord God, listening to your scriptures... ...read and expounded. Oh, come, come and warm our hearts to happily embrace what you say to us. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide is is the sermon outline right there with lots of spaces to write notes. For everybody else, there are a couple of quotations and scripture references on the back of that um, worship guide for you to be able to follow along. I know some of you think that God has answered your prayer because now that I'm wearing a boot, I won't be moving very much. We'll have to stay at one place most of the time. So some of you are probably shouting hallelujah on the inside, right? My friends, there are seasons. There are seasons that we go through in our personal lives. And we go through in our family lives. And sometimes we go through these seasons as a congregation or even as a denomination of Christ church that feels like we are wandering through a dry and weary land. ...where there is no water. then there are various causes and reasons for this. Some of them are extremely serious. But also there are others just simply where we fall into a slump. So how does one get out of this slew of despond? Tipping my hat to John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress here a minute. How does one get out of the slew of despond? Well, there's something here in this passage... ...that God is saying that would communicate... ...and should communicate richly to us... ...in this regard. But first we must deal with the problem of pain. And that's really going to be verse 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 7. So please do have your Bibles open there. So verse 11 and 12... ...the work has been accomplished. The house has been built. And now God comes and has something to say... ...about Solomon's prayer from chapter 6. Solomon, you asked all these things... I'm now going to respond to you. That's what's going on in verse 11 and 12. And notice where the Lord goes. He begins, verse 13, with the problem of pain. He begins with the dismal circumstances that Solomon described over in chapter 6, 20 through 39. He begins with those dismal circumstances that Solomon described in those eight scenarios. And notice how he begins his statement, verse 13. When I shut up the heavens, etc. None of these things really happen by accident when I do this. Notice that God is addressing, the things that He's addressing is what we would call the problem of pain. Natural catastrophes, droughts, plagues, and included in Solomon's scenarios that the Lord is hinting at would also be war and combat and all that. All those aspects. When I send them, the Lord is taking utter ownership of the problem of pain. And so you may wonder, well, why would that be? I think C.S. Lewis gets it right in his little bitty teeny book called The Problem of Pain. That's where I stole the title of the, the point from. And he says this, and this is in your sermon notes. Is that first quotation. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our, in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to awaken and arouse a deaf world. We are a deaf people. Just go read Genesis 3. You can't miss it. It's been that way ever since. I mean, we all kind of laugh about when our adolescent kids have selective hearing loss. You know what I mean? Until our moms and dads remind us that we had the same problem when we were adolescents. We all have a selective hearing loss. We're a world of deafness. So pain becomes a megaphone that God is shouting to us to arouse us. And that's why Walter Kaiser says what he says. It's the next quotation from his little book called Revive Us Again. Where he's looking at verse 13 here. He says this. The conditions of 2 Chronicles 7.13 imply that when national disasters begin to afflict a nation, people... Or group of believers, it is time to ask what is, that, what is it that God is trying to say to them or to us when I sinned, My friends, I think that's extremely important because we often want to shift the blame. We often want to find other excuses. We often do not want to go deep and say what is the Lord trying to say to us? We often want to say it's, it's a... It's a it's just a natural catastrophe. Or it's because of big business that created this whole problem. Or it's because of big pharma. We, just, we throw all kinds of, a, of, a, of victims in there or targets in those accusations. But I think he's right. I think Kaiser's right and C.S. Lewis is right. That when we go through those situations, whether as a body of believers or as a nation or as a community, we ought to be asking, what is God saying to us? I remember years ago... We were in Midland, Texas, which doesn't get much rain anyways. It's like 14 inches for the whole year. Well, one year, this is right before we moved up here, it was a real drought. I mean, it was a genuine drought. It was half an inch for a whole year. My front yard looked like the Sahara, and my backyard looked like the Mojave. The Waltons were nodding their head because they lived through this. Right? It was a horrible drought. I mean, I came to Oklahoma, and everybody's talking about a drought, and I'm looking at green grass, and I was like, what drought? Right? There was no grass left in our yards. So we were part of the ministerial alliance, and uh, my friend Larry Long, who was the president, he's a Christian Missionary Alliance minister, but he was the president of that ministerial alliance for that season, and everybody's bellyaching, complaining about the drought, and that's okay. But Larry had the presence of mind to stop all of these ministers and say, have any of you even thought that maybe God wants us to say, is there a drought going on in the church? Is there a drought in my heart? This is the right thing to say. Now, I have more to say about that. I wrote about it in my letter this last week. There are copies of that letter on the credenza on your way out the door. And you can see that. I think that's important. And my friends, if we keep in mind how God's rigor, the rigor of God, is meant to bring the restoration of God, then that all makes sense. And if we get this, then what it should do, one of the things it should do for us is it should get us to learn to turn away from that version of Christianity. Let me go a little further. That perversion of Christianity that says that nothing bad should ever happen to us. If you believe in God, nothing bad should happen to us. Oh, sister, the reason, I heard people say this, the reason why you got that cancer is because you sinned. In the world, are you talking about? The reason why you got that problem is because, well, you don't have enough faith. What are you talking about? That's not Christianity. That's downright paganism. If we get this and grasp it, then we finally can be set free from that perversion of Christianity. The problem of pain. And so then comes the Lord's promise. And it's verse 14. And I want you to notice that first off, the Lord's promise is people-specific. It is a people-specific promise. The very first words. If my people who are called by my name. Well, you know who that is. In the Old Testament, we hear it all the time. That, that God's, the, the genetic descendants of Abraham are God's people that he has called by name. In fact, every time you hear the benediction at the end of the service in the morning, and I and i give the benediction from numbers 6 the lord bless you and keep you lord make his face shine upon you etc god goes on to tell aaron every time you lift up your hands and you give that benediction you are putting my name on my people again so god's people were always given his name his name was on them if my people were called by my name and is anybody here a christian anybody here been baptized so when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven, on earth, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and, and woo! the name of God is on you. If my people who are called by my name. So notice that this is a people specific promise. I think that's extremely important. Revival and reformation, as God is laying it out here in verse 14, is aimed at God's church. His church at that moment that was coming out of exile after hundreds of years of being under Assyrian and Babylonian Persian oppression, as they're coming out of exile, beleaguered and battered and disenfranchised and disillusioned in the middle of the 4th century B.C. But notice that it's also about, it's aimed at God's church, feeling beleaguered and battered, and disillusioned, and disenfranchised in 2023. If my people who are called by my name... Let me just go on a limb. This promise is not for the United States of America. I was just looking this morning at... Uh, looking at pictures of 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. I was just Googling them to put, for a reason. And I couldn't... I was stunned by how many American flags... We're attached to that verse. This promise is not to the United States of America. It's not to the African country of Nigeria. It's not a promise to the South American country of Brazil. It's not. It is a people-specific promise to God's people who are called by His name. It is aimed at God's church in any of those places. And I think you need to remember that. You need to hold on to that. It is a people-specific promise for aimed at God's church in any of those places. A people-specific promise that contains, notice, prescriptions, a prescription of revival and reformation in God's church. And that's the rest, really, of verse 14, the prescription for revival, and reformation. And notice the first part of the prescription. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, humble themselves. Now that statement is going to surface like 12 more times in 2 Chronicles. There's one or two times where it says God will humble someone... ...but the rest of the times it will say they humbled themselves before the Lord. It is a significant theme in 2 Chronicles. Humble yourself. Notice this is the very first one mentioned. Why does God take the trouble to mention this first? I would have thought he would have mentioned something else like prayer or something... ...but he mentions humbleness... Because since Genesis 3, there's not a humble soul on this earth, really. Have you looked in the mirror? I don't care how phony you are about your humility and how, oh, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a humble person. I'm proud I'm humble. What? Right? (laughs) We're very proud people. Humans are full of themselves. Most of our problems, I'm going to agree with St. Augustine here, most of our problems come from pride, our pride. That's why Augustine would go on to say, as Neil reminded us this morning, we'll go on to say, here's, here's the first, second, and third um, uh, 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 parts of Christian discipleship. The first is humility. The second is humility. The third is humility. Humility, humility, humility. Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. ...as we come before God... ...is following Jesus. Think about Philippians 2. We use it as a confession of faith. We'll use it, I think it's next week or the week after... ...because we go through the, this every six weeks. We'll use it in a couple of weeks... ...but Philippians chapter 2. Our Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself... ...who being in the form of God... ...did not consider it a thing to be flaunted... ...but emptied himself by taking upon himself... ...the form of his servant... ...and he humbled himself to the point of death even the death of the cross. He stooped down into our humanity. He submitted to, our, to the Father's world rescue operation. And there in Philippians 2, we're being impressed, it's being impressed, impressed upon us to kneel down with Jesus, to stoop down with our Lord Jesus under the word of God in humble submission to God and to His directions. To empty ourselves of our own religious inventions. To empty ourselves of our own self-righteous arrogance and comeuppance. To recognize our own bankruptcy before Almighty God. And to learn to take upon ourselves the mind of a servant, Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 5. As he's looking at Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells us that. When you go to Mark 10, as he's talking to his disciples, that he's talking about leadership, it's very interesting. He says, here are the traits of leadership in the kingdom. These are the traits that I want. He doesn't say, I want you to be bra- braggish, braggadocious. I don't, I, he doesn't say, I want you to be proud. I don't want you to, he doesn't say, I want you to run around thumping your chest like you're entitled. That'll get you elected in a public office in America or lots of places. It'll make you a CEO in most companies. But Jesus says, No, if you're going to be a leader in my kingdom, you, you've got to follow me. And what does that mean? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God begins here. The very first thing He says, the very first prescription of revival and reformation, humble ourselves. He's been saying it from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You heard it in the call to worship from Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite one. And James brings it up to us. We hear it in James 4 verse 10. And also 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 and 7. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Even our Lord Jesus says it to us. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. I think Christopher Hutchinson does us a service in a book he wrote. And you have this quotation in your sermon notes. It's a book I am... Recommend highly. If you have a choice to buy one of my books or to buy Christopher Hutchinson's book, Rediscovering Humility, I'm going to tell you, buy Christopher's book. Shut up. Shut up. This was my moment. Stop it. But buy Christopher Hutchinson's book. It is extremely important, Rediscovering Humility. And here's one of the things he says, and I'm going to bring this quotation up again next week. When we look at chapter 10 and 11... God's grace in the gospel creates a gospel-wrought humility, which in turn leads to a gospel-driven unity. So God's first prescription, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Humble ourselves. But then the second prescription, and pray. They will humble themselves and pray. Right here, this passage is establishing prayer as a principal means by which God's people can receive God's enrichment and establishment. In our Reformed and Presbyterian circles, we talk about God's means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. It's a means of grace. And right here, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Yeah, it's being established as a means of grace, as a primary, as a principal means by which God's people can receive God's enrichment and God's establishment. And as you go backwards in first, into 1 Chronicles and you go forward into 2 Chronicles, you cannot miss it, that this is actually a centerpiece of 1 and 2 Chronicles. You go back to 1 Chronicles, the first story, you run across in First Chronicles is the story of Jabez, right? Chapter 4. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. Well, what made him honorable? Well, it doesn't tell us anything but one thing. He prayed to the God of Israel. He prayed to the God, the liberating, loyal God, the God who said, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He prayed to the God of Israel, oh, that you'd bless me indeed, lord my territory, etc. And God answered his request. The very first story in 1 Chronicles, he was more honorable than his brothers. He prayed. Then you go to 1 Chronicles 5 and on the east side of the Jordan River, the very next story, the, the tribes on the east side of the river Jordan as they were being attacked and had to go defend themselves. It says, and they prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered them and granted them victory. And then you go through 1, 1 Chronicles 16, 17 and 29 and David is seen as praying all the time. And God hearing him and responding to him. And then you move to 2 Chronicles and in chapter 1 and chapter 6. Who's praying in chapter 1 and chapter 6? David's son, who happens to be, Solomon, yes, very good, score. Right, Solomon prays and the Lord answers his prayers, both of those prayers. So leading up to this point, oh wow, this is central. And then from this point on, as you go all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles, you will see how significant prayer is as a primary principle means of gaining and receiving what God is doing. There'll be lots of kings that will be mentioned as praying. Oh, my favorite is rotten old Manasseh. Anybody remember Manasseh? He's not the guy you want to live next door to you, let me just say. Horrible, evil, stinky, wicked. He even gets captured by the Assyrians and taken into exile. Think about how much that story is going to mean to those who first heard this. And while he was in exile, it says that rotten, old, mean, nasty Manasseh became repentant Manasseh. And what was the picture of his repentance? He cried out to the Lord, confessing his sin, and the Lord restored him. All the way from 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles. Prayers, a principal means by which God's people can receive God's enrichment and establishment. And that would be an important message for God's people in any every generation. Oh, God wants us to pray and he answers our prayers. He actually hears us. It's a principal means by which God's people can receive God's enrichment and establishment. There's a second trait. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. The third one is, and seek my face. Now, in most every case, to seek the face of God... Means to seek the person of God Himself. It's a it's an expression of loyalty to the Lord, devotion to the Lord, and delight in the Lord. You know what it's like to be the supervisor, and you're talking to one of your supervisees and you're giving them directions and they turn on you while you're talking to them. They turn on you and they say, Yeah, Sarge, whatever, and they walk off. You know at that moment when they turn their back to you, they hadn't heard a thing you said. You know what I'm saying? You remember what what it was like when you had kids? You had kids and Junior was not listening to you. What did you do? You grabbed his face. If you did it, it's okay. I did it. Grabbed his face. So Junior, you listen to me. Because you wanted to make eye contact. You wanted him to see your face. So he knew all the non-verbals that were behind the verbals. You know what I'm saying? Right? Seeking the face of God is a very personal thing. And it has very much to do with loyalty and devotion and delight in the Lord. Seeking the face of God, seeking God is the very opposite of forsaking Him. It's the very opposite of turning your backs to Him. It's the very opposite of abandoning His covenant relationship. And it carries with it an idea of intensity and warm commitment. And seek my face. When we get to chapter 11, verse 6, and you'll see this come up in several other places in 2 Chronicles. That intensity is made even clearer. They set their hearts to seek Yahweh. Seeking him as a sincere devotion expressed or fleshed out on the one hand by coming to be formed and coming to be shaped by the law of God. Remember how the Ten Commandments begin? Where do the Ten Commandments begin? Trick question. Yes, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. High five, Nellie. Yes. It begins with, I'm the God who set you free. Now here's how free people live. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right? And so when you think about it, then the law of God is actually how we maintain those freedoms, grow in the freedoms that He gave us, where we're learning to be shaped by them, to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. It's shaping us. That's part of seeking the face of God. But even more, seeking the face of God is also that, we, that um, we come with yearning. We come with desiring. We come with delighting in the Lord God for his own sake. Not what we can get out of him. But for who he is in his own being, in his own sake. So there's the three prescriptions, three of them. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then comes the fourth one. ...and turn from their wicked ways. And turn from their wicked ways. Now notice that statement actually... ...is not just about stopping doing evil. That's part of it. To turn from their wicked ways. It's wicked ways, they turn from them. But to turn from them means... ...if you're turning from this... ...that means you're going there. If you're turning away from that... ...you're going here. So to turn away means you're turning toward. To turn away from your wicked ways is to turn toward the ways of Yahweh, the ways of the Lord. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. In question 87, when it says, what is repentance unto life? It then it answers, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Already in that statement, you realize that the writers of the catechism are not talking about repentance being a one-time event you did to get saved. Who doesn't need saving grace? At any moment in life? Come on, speak up. We all do, don't we? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, it's a saving grace. What does it do? It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his own sin, an apprehension or comprehension or grasping of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred from his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavoring after new obedience. It's that turning from and turning to. It's like the, I've told you the story before, the guy that had committed adultery, horrible. And he finally owned up to it to his wife because she caught him. She acknowledged it only when she caught him. And she confronted him and I was there and he was boohooing and crocodile tears. You know what I'm talking about? Just just, Oh, it's horrible. I'm so sorry. Two weeks later, he came to my office and he was mad because she hadn't forgiven him. And my first question to him was this. Have you taken the other woman's phone number out of your phone? What's that got to do with anything? Uh, Yeah, I don't forgive you either. And I don't trust you any further than I can throw you. That's not very Christian. No, that's really Christian. There's no repentance there. You didn't turn from that toward this with a desire to do the right thing. You were just sorry for the pain that you felt. And so that's what God is calling us to. That's the fourth part of the prescription. To turn away from our wicked lifestyles, our wicked endeavors. And to move towards God and what He wants and what He loves. He's opened the way. Why wouldn't you go there? So there's the fourfold prescription. And following that hard on the heels of this fourfold prescription is a threefold promise. And you know it. It's that last part of verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Number one, I will answer their prayers. Number two, forgive their sins. I will clean them up and I will restore the relationship. And the last one is, I will heal the land. And remember in 2nd, 1st, and 2nd Chronicles, the land is the kingdom. The land is the kingdom. It wasn't the turf itself. It was the fact that this was the kingdom of God at that moment. And so the promise is this. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal the church. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal the kingdom of God. That's the promise that God makes, the threefold promise. It's a great promise. Now I gave you the rest of chapter 7. I gave you the rest of chapter 8 and 9 as I was reading it. So let's go to the end. What do we do? Well, there's nothing really new or surprising in this prescription. There's no new secrets here. There are no fresh steps to get us holier and healthier. In fact, every one of these traits, these these prescriptions are just the very things that a lover of God, a lover of God always wants to follow. If you really love God, if you've been saved by God and you love him, you want to seek his face. You want... To draw near to him. You humble yourself before him. And you know your ways are wicked and you're always wanting to turn from it. You know what I'm saying? You picking up what I'm putting down? It's what lovers of God have always wanted. It's what Christ lovers, who have already been loved by God first, now respond. How they want to respond. We love because he first loved us. Nothing new here. So just go back through the four prescriptions. Be humble. Our Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 18, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble. Pray. Scripture says it all over the place. In the New Testament and the Old For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in every circumstance, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or Colossians 4 and verse 2, continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, pray. Seek God's face. And maybe you're sitting there and saying, well, how do we seek God's face? If you're asking that, thank you. I'm glad you're asking that because I want to answer that question. How do you seek God's face? Well, think about Scripture and what, what it tells us. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father... is referring to Jesus. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has made Him known. If you're going to seek the face of God, guess where we need to go? Jesus. Did I hear somebody say Jesus? Jesus! Woo! Right? And that's what Jesus Himself said. And I And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself... He also said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. You seek the face of God, you're going to seek it in Jesus, in Him only, in Christ alone. Seek the face of God. The door's open. Christ made the way open. Why would we want to do anything else? And the fourth prescription is very clear. Turn from our wicked ways. Paul was telling the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians seven ten, he says godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation not to be regretted but worldly grief leads to death and there's this turning from and turning to yes Lord I need to turn to you I need to let go I need to quit shifting the blame I need to quit making excuses well the reason why I got drunk is because she's a what Right? stop that nonsense now, the reason why I did that is because I'm a rebel at heart. Forgive me my sins and turn from it to Him. The way is open. And so, my friends, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is simply a clarion call to stay with the normal Christian life. Where there is sincere confessing and forsaking of our individual and communal sins, where there is this deep hungry desire to reverse the patterns of se- of spiritual declension and apostasy and apathy in our lives and have to have a passionate aching for after God himself it's just the simple clarion call of the normal christian life this is and this has always been the way for denominational congregational familial or family and individual revival reformation if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways that I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the kingdom. Hallelujah. And so, brothers and sisters, delight yourself in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Be humble. Humility, humility, humility. Be humble. Pray. Seek his face. Turn. Do it personally. Do it as a family. Do it as a church. Even when you're trudging through that dry and weary land where there is no water. And why can you do it and should you do it? Because what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. He will hear from heaven, forgive our sins, etc. And that takes us back then to 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In fact, he even gave us precious and very great promises. Woo! By which we can partake of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Let's pray. Thank you so much, our Lord and our God, that you gave us this prescription. You gave it to Solomon. You give it to us. Thank you that you delight to have us called by your name. And you take us more seriously than we take ourselves or you. But you open the way in your Son Jesus. You open the way for us to draw near, to seek your face. You open the way for us to be close to you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we put our hands out and we say, not right now. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing that makes me the center of the universe. Forgive us for those moments when we've done that. And draw us to you. May we be known always as a humble people because our Lord Jesus Christ is a humble Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.